To the hopeless, freedom to captives, 
In the name of the Father and Son, we speak healing to heartbreak, peace to the restless. Your salvation has come. Arise and shine. Come out of the darkness. Walk out of your chains. Arise and shine. Come and give him worship. Glorify him. Love to the desert, death to our bondage. In the name of the Father and Son, we speak power in weakness. This is our witness that our Savior is one. Coming away, coming away. This is the sound of a people shouting your praise, shouting your praise. This is the sound of a people coming away, coming away. This is the sound.
as you know, the last couple of weeks we've been busy with our series on identity. And this morning I'm going to speak specifically on the topic of I belong. I belong. How do we define ourselves? And I think, you know, just a couple of things that we've learned and heard on this series so far is that there's this aspect of our identity which is personal, which is unique to us. But we're going to look a little bit today also a bit at group identity. How do the groups we belong to define us and help us? You know, I think as I've reflected on this topic, I've realized there's a couple of mechanisms that help me define myself. You know, nature would be one. The, the genes I've inherited from my parents, whether I'm created male and female, that's part male or female, that's part of how I identify, creates and shapes my identity. There's a little bit of nurture. It's the families and the stories and the culture that we grow up in. And I think for sure there's some elements of choice that help us define who God has made us to be. It's just struck me how often Pastor Louis has also mentioned in the series how we, offer, we need something outside of ourselves, external to ourselves, to help us define ourselves. You see, identity cannot ultimately just be formed by myself. It cannot just be internally defined. It cannot be created just by me. You can't do the me, myself, and I had a meeting and therefore I declare uh, in shape of identity. I do have a role. My choices do have a role. But there's many other things that influence how my identity is shaped. So, for example, I know that I'm made in the image of God. And in his likeness, I have been created. I know that I'm known by God. And as we heard last week, we are children. We, I am a child of God. And those are the primary things that should be in my mind and in my life that start shaping my identity. But I'm not just me. I'm not just an individual. I'm not an island in the stream. And so we all belong to groups outside of things, outside of ourselves that help shape and define us. Probably the most important group, if we may even call it a group, is our nuclear family. The family you grew up in with your, for most people, father, mother, brothers and sisters, uh, some extended families, uncles and aunties and cousins get involved. Your family shapes who you are. It's really, really important. One of the key things in shaping who we are from our family is the shared memories we have as a family, the shared stories that we have as a family. I remember when I was young, my dad always used to tell a story. He grew up in Zimbabwe and he used to tell a story. Him and his friends had motorbikes. Uh, he loved Triumph motorbikes. And he used to tell a story about how they would ride their bicycles and then actually get up on the bike and stand on their seats while they were riding. And I remember hearing the story and thinking, yeah, one day I'm going to do that and I'm going to do that. And then whenever my dad told that story, my mother would give a look, which kind of just settled it like that, that, that's never happening in your life. Uh, and she would then go into quite a long uh, lecture on how dangerous motorbikes are and things like that. So I've never ridden a motorbike and stood on a seat and went down the road with my uh, short hair blowing in the wind at all. But there's other stories that come in our families, maybe some through generations, that define and shape who we are as a family and how that grows. Uh, our families shape us not just in how the actual practices of the home that we grew up in, but by these stories and by these shared memories. Our friendship circles shape who we are and form us, particularly, obviously, as, we, as children head more into their teenage years, those friendship circles become very important in, in shaping and forming identity. The culture, or probably today because so many of us, the cultures we grow up in shape and form our identity. The society we grow up in, not only local, as it was maybe 30, 40 years ago, but the global culture, the global society are shaping us. 
And I think in a culture today that is increasingly permissive uh, on things that probably, that not probably, that don't align with God's plan and uh, shape for identity and, and life and, and morals, uh, these cultures are shaping us. And if, in, in permissive cultures, more things might be allowed. I think oppressive cultures can be equally as devastating and as bad. But I think globally we find ourselves in many more permissive kind of situations than perhaps in the past. One of our present realities is that social media shapes us phenomenally. And I think as we've engaged with high schoolers and things, we've realized that one of the, probably the downsides of lockdown is that social media has become a primary identifier, not the real world and the real families and the real friendship circles that are around our young people. The groups we belong to are very powerful influences in shaping who we are and forming our identity. And if we're not thoughtful and mindful about it, and if we're not evaluating, assessing, and discerning, these cultures can shape us in a way that is not necessarily godly or, biblic or biblical. Now, obviously, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's another group that is very important in how it shapes your identity and culture, and that is your family of faith, your church. Uh, particularly, not only just the church universal of all the believers alive on the planet, past, present, and a little bit future, but your local church also as well in shaping your identity. Your church community is an important part of shaping your church identity. Because you're not only known by God individually, it's also that we are known by God corporately or as a group together. We are known by God. We are also the family of God. And so I wonder if I had to ask you today, how do you define church? If I say the word church, what actually comes to mind? Now, the reality for many of us is the first thing that will probably come to mind is a building. It's a space or a, a place. Uh, perhaps for some of you, it will be an event. It's something that happens on Sunday. It's, you Church, you think, you know, worship, people worshiping together, communally and together. For some, the word church would mean family and friendships, uh, a safe place. Unfortunately, for some, it might not have that positive experience because church might have become a place of being wounded. Now, whatever our connotation of church is, how we think about church and how we define church is very important in shaping our identity. Now, obviously, we like to say that church is more than a building. It's a community. It's a space. And that's obviously the New Testament understanding of church is much more around family and people and community than what it is about space, place and event. But the church is unique. It's, there's nothing like the church. There's nothing like the local church. It's, the church is unlike any other gathering of people, whether gathering together or gathering online, virtually, as we are now. The church is unique. There's nothing like it. The church is not like a club where you pay membership and you, you know, uh, do certain, you know, whatever that club is about. You engage in certain activities together. Uh, the church is not like a company where there's, you know, certain rules and governances. Now, there's things we learn from those places, but the church is unique. There's nothing like the church. We have different ways we speak about church. Here at Hatfield, you'll know we speak about the church gathered and scattered, gathered when we come together, whether it's on a Sunday in a building together, whether it's in your homes, at watch parties or different things. But the church is also scattered where we as the church, the people of God, go into the spaces and places, our front lines that God has called us to be in. The whole idea there is that the church is just more than a Sunday service. Sometimes we talk about church small c, where we mean the local church, where you would normally attend church or view church. And sometimes we talk about church capital C, which is 
the whole church, church universal, the church across the planet. And so it's difficult to compare the church to anything. You know, uh, in South Africa, for example, churches are required by law to register as NPOs and PBOs. But a church is more than an NPO and a PBO. Uh, those things give us benefits and there's certain compliances we need to do. But they don't, those legal registrations don't define a church. A church is the body of Christ. There's now a number of metaphors in the New Testament that speak about church. I'm going to mention three. There's others that, that I'm just not going to mention today. But there's three biblical me metaphors that are quite good in describing a church. The one is the body. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says, you are the body of Christ. And each one, each individual, is part of it. Uh, the church is also described in Revelation uh, 19 and chap chapter 19, chapter 21 as a bride of Christ. Uh, church is also described as a family. And it's probably this family metaphor that I want to just major on and, and look at the church through this family lens to help us consider how church informs and shapes our identity as believers in Christ. As I've mentioned, there's other metaphors that uh, the Bible uses but maybe just to focus on the family metaphor today. Uh, this will come up on your screens, but let's look at just two scriptures that speak to this idea of the church as a family. The translations use a different word, and I'll explain that shortly. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, uh, Paul writes and he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. So a church brings people who don't know each other together, but you're fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of God's household. That word household was the first century reference to what we would call family. Today, they did use the word family, but the household was bigger. It included everybody that was involved in the, the enterprise or the living of the family. And so Ephesians 2 speaks about the church being God's household. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, Paul writes to Timothy, says, If I'm delayed... Um, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So in God's family, there's a way we conduct ourselves. Uh, God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So the church provides a pillar, a foundation place for truth as well. And so these scriptures refer to this first century concept of household, but in our modern terms, it would mean the family of God. And so it's a valid biblical metaphor to think of the church as the family of God. But to illustrate this a little bit, I want to use uh, the biblical, a biblical word that's a family word that I think is very important for us to understand well, and it's the word adalfoi, adalfoi. Now, literally translated, it means brothers. It's a, it's a masculine word, a plural word. It means brothers. But uh, I think it works a little bit differently in the New Testament. If you're familiar with the English word guys that we often use, I, I think it's used quite widely. But... Um, the word guys and its usage is often determined by the context in which you're using it, using it. So, for example, if I were to walk into a room and there's a bunch of men, males, in the room and I say guys, then guys means men. But if I were to walk into that same room on a different occasion and there were men and women present in that space and I said guys, generally accepted, people would know that I'm talking about the men and the women together. So the, the context of usage determines the meaning. And I think Adelphoi works like that. Not only I think that there's quite a persuasive uh, group of scholars that believe this too, and a lot of the modern translations reflect this, is that when the word Adelphoi is used and it's addressed to a church where there's men and women present, then it means brothers and sisters. And that's probably a good translation 
for the word Adolfo, particularly when it's used in the New Testament letters. By the way, used more than 100 times in the New Testament to speak of believers. It's in fact the most common New Testament word that speaks of Christians, and it's this word brothers and sisters. Now, it's interesting that Paul chose to use this word, and it, it probably comes out a little bit of that interaction Jesus had where he was speaking to people and his, his nuclear families, his mother and his brothers and sisters arrived, and the people came to Jesus. One of the places it's recorded for us is in Matthew chapter 12, and they said to Jesus, your, your family's here, and he says, well, who is my mother and who is my brother and who is my sister? And it's the one who does the will of God. Now, Jesus is making a point. He's not being rude to his family per se. But what he's actually doing is, is that there's a, the, your primary group, the primary group that you identify with changes from your nuclear family to the believing family, those who do the will of God. And it's so interesting that when Paul writes his letters, he uses Adolfoi, brothers and sisters. He could have chosen friendship, which was kind of, it was known in the Greek and the first century culture. But what was revolutionary, what was unknown, is this idea of Adolfoi, brothers and sisters, to talk to people from different households, different families, different social classes, different economic classes, different countries, and to call them with family language, to use language of siblings, brothers and sisters, becomes very, it's, it's actually quite revolutionary. In fact, later on, we know in the history of the church that this idea of being fa the family of God, being brothers and sisters, starts undermining the, the hierarchical structures in the Roman society of the day. A couple hundred years later in the history of the church, when people want to persecute the church and when they want to you know, accuse them of things in the courts, one of the things they accuse them of is actually incest. Horrible word. But basically they say that these Christian people commit incest because the brothers and sisters are living together or the brothers and sisters are getting married. So strong that this identification of being a brother and a sister in Christ is the important qualifier became that the pagans outside it didn't understand it and outside of the church didn't understand it and thought it very strange uh, in the space and in the time that it was happening in. And so it's kind of like this. My wife is my wife. She's my family. But first, she's a sister in Christ. My daughter is my daughter, but first, she's a sister in Christ. Now, that can, uh, it's a little weird, but it creates an interesting dynamic that when I engage with my family, I engage first as a brother in Christ, then as a husband, or then as a father. That becomes more important in identifying it. So, since we're brothers and sisters and we're part of the family of God, I want to go through a couple of the family characteristics that help shape and form our identity, not only as individuals, but as a group of believers together. Now, some of them I'm going to go quite quickly. Some of them, uh, one or two of them, I'm going to try and just uh, linger on a little bit. So uh, please excuse me if I pick up the pace a little bit. So as Pastor Louis always says, hello, family. Completely biblical, completely true. Hello, brothers and sisters. Let's look at some characteristics of our family. First of all, we're a called out family, a called out family. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of that you're calling someone out on their behavior or something that they've said. Uh, one of the, the, the New Testament word, the main New Testament word used for church is the word ekklesia. Uh, it's a Greek word that in the first century context referred to people who were called out of their normal everyday activity, their normal lives. They were called out for a specific purpose. So perhaps in a little town, 
they needed to form a, a group to accomplish something, to get something done. And then they would say, let's take the household of Stephanus and the household of Timothy. We're forming an ecclesia for a purpose, and we're going to get this done. It's called out. It's, there's this idea of being separated for a purpose that comes with our family. And so what we must realize as a church is we're called out of our ordinary, mundane, everyday lives to a special purpose that God has for us. Very close to that, a second characteristic of our family is that what I want to call, we're a family with dual citizenship. Uh, this idea of dual citizenship, I think, would be familiar to many. It's this idea that you can have a passport for, for two countries. Uh, the biblical idea for this is in John chapter 17, when Jesus prays his high priestly prayer for the church. Uh, John chapter 17, he says that the church, verse 16, he says, they're not the, of the world, as I am not of the world. And so we coin this phrase and we say that the church is, uh, is in the world, but not of the world. As a believer, I'm in the world, but not of the world. As a community of believers, we're in the world, but not of the world, meaning that which is happening in the world around us, the society and the culture around us, doesn't define us primarily as the people of God. Now, Ephesians 2, uh, 19 that we read earlier also uses this idea of citizenship and says that although we were foreigners and strangers, we're now citizens uh, with God's other people. And this applies, as I've said, both corporately and individually. Another biblical language for this is found in 2 Corinthians 5, where it says we're ambassadors of God in this world. Now, dual citizenship is, is uh, I think, quite an interesting concept because what it basically says is that you can be born in one country but live in another. Now, a lot of countries have different rules about this, but if you've lived there long enough, uh, written the right tests, passed the right exams, made the right declarations, they might say you can now become a citizen of this country, which means you're entitled to the benefits, privileges of being a citizen of that country, and you get a passport. Now, what some people tend to do is they don't want to give up the citizenship of their original country, so they keep that citizenship, and they take on the citizenship of this new country. And so they have two passports, which apparently might make travel easier here. I don't have dual citizenship. But uh, there's this a concept. Now, I think the biblical concept goes a lot further than that because something happens when we get born again, to use that metaphor from John chapter 3. I'm born in South Africa. Let's use South Africa as an example because it's, it's my country of birth. I'm born in South Africa, but when I get born again into the kingdom of God, I don't only have dual citizenship. What actually changes is that my citizenship in the kingdom becomes my primary citizenship. Um, this happened for me actually when I was 15, when I got born again. And uh, it's a story around the old national anthem. And so I understand that that has some political connotations for many, but that's not my intent. My intent is to, if you can take note of the change of heart. So in the old uh, anthem that we used to sing, uh, there was a phrase in Afrikaans that said, which translated into English means we will live and die for you, South Africa. Not literally, that's the paraphrase translation. We live and die for you, South Africa, which uh, is a real strong nationalistic statement because it puts the state as your reason for being in existence. And so I got born again when I was 15, and as uh, happened in many schools at that time, every now and then you would sing the national anthem. And I remember standing in the hall and we were singing the anthem, and we got to that line, and I couldn't sing it. I, something had happened in my heart where I realized I don't live and die for my country anymore. Actually, I live and die for Jesus. Something changed 
in my heart. It was so fundamental. And since that day, to be honest, nationalism has never had a hold on me. I think the words in the new anthem, let us live and strive for freedom in our land, South Africa, probably much more positive. But even there, South Africa is not the reason we live and strive for freedom. It's for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so perhaps this is a way I can say it, is that I live here. I live in South Africa, Malawi, Nigeria, the USA, Australia, wherever. I live here, but I'm actually a citizen of the kingdom of God. I live here, but the kingdom of God is my home. I'm resident in this country, but the kingdom of God is my home. I come from South Africa, I'm born here, but I'm also born into the kingdom of God, and that becomes my primary identifier. If I may push this a little bit, and it perhaps might be a little bit subtle, but it's very important because we're a family whose citizenship is actually defined primarily by being a family of the kingdom of God. It's, it's this kind of difference. I'm not a South African who is a Christian. I'm a Christian who is South African. I'm not a 50-year-old who is a Christian, whatever identity marker. I'm a Christian who happens to be 50 years old. I'm not a man who is a Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be a man. Being a Christian, being a part of God's family is my primary identifier. And whatever identity marker you have, Christian comes first. Christian becomes primary. So we're a called out family. We're a family with dual citizenship. We're a holy family. Uh, the New Testament authors often refer to the church as God's holy people. Read many of Paul's letters, chapters 1, to God's holy people in Ephesus, God's holy people in Colossae, uh, Colossi, sorry. Um, all over Philippi, God's holy people. Paul refers to our family of faith as a holy family of faith. If we look at something like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which by many are, is regarded as kind of the ethics of the kingdom, the, the way we're supposed to live in the kingdom of God, uh, the ethics of our family. It's very interesting, the defining phrase in those three chapters is, so that you can be like your father in heaven, so that you can be children of your father in heaven. It's the family language. When I'm a child of God, I live in the way that I live in my family. I remember at a stage, my daughter, who really ever misbehaves, but on the occasion that she did, uh, I said to her, in our family, we don't behave that way. And I think that's true for our Christian family too. There's a, there's a way we live. There's a code of morals that God gave us, a lifestyle of ethics. But it's not because it's a set of rules. It's because I want to be like my father. Because I'm my father's child and in this family, this is how we treat one another. This is how we behave. This is how we love one another. And that's another characteristic of the family we live in. We're a family that loves radically and generously. John chapter 13, Jesus very clearly said, they will know that you are my disciples. You'll be known as believers. You'll be known as Christians by your love for one another. And so there is this idea that our love for one another becomes part of our testimony. We are a family that loves radically and generously. And I think the COVID epidemic has, we've, some, most churches have done so well. We've displayed mutual care. We've loved. We've reached out to the, those who've lost jobs, to those who've lost loved ones, to those who are hurt, to those who are ill, to those who are grieving. We have loved well. We've proved that we're a family that loves radically and generously. Well done. Well done for doing that. We're also a family that is exclusive and inclusive. Now, that's a bit of a contradiction, but let me explain. We're an exclusive family because to enter, you have to believe in Jesus Christ. 
If you don't believe in Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in him and given your life, your whole life to him, you can't be part of the family. Sorry. But there's this entrance requirement. You don't have to pay for it. It's not like a membership. You don't pay for it. But you have to express faith. You have to surrender and accept what Jesus has done for you. That makes us quite exclusive. So at least you, if you're a believer, you're part of an exclusive club. You're part of an exclusive family. But what's wonderful about our family is that we're also inclusive. Because it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, what you've not done, whether you're rich, poor, whatever your background is, gender-wise, culture, race, anywhere you've lived in the world, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're included. We are a people. Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7. We're a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's one of my favorite pictures of the church. We're a family that models unity and diversity. That's a little bit more on the diversity. There's two characteristics I want to look at now that speak a little bit to our unity, that are quite fundamental in our understanding of ourselves as a family. These are some of the characteristics that actually bind us together in a real way. Firstly, we're a family of the Spirit. What do I mean by that? If you can turn in your devices or Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and it will be good if we can read this, this, these two verses together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Paul writes and he says, You were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. There, that's our exclusive entry requirement. When you believe, you were believed, you were marked in him, in Jesus, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So there's, there's a lot of rich theology in these two verses, but in terms of our identity, I want us to understand that this seal of the Holy Spirit, that when we believe we receive the Holy Spirit, makes us not only an individual with a spirit, but it makes us a family because every other individual that comes into this family is also receives the Holy Spirit, is marked with a seal of the spirit. Now, if you look at these two verses, you'll see that the word you is repeated a few times and you were included. You heard the message when you believed, you were marked. And our challenge, particularly if we're influenced by Western culture, is that we read this you, and in the English language does not help us here, is we read it individually. We read it that it applies to me. Now that's true, it does apply to me. But in the original Greek, this is the you plural. This is the we. This is us together are included. Us together heard the message. Us together believed. And then we were all together marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. That's why we are a family of the Spirit. It's that you plural. Gordon Fee, one of my favorite scholars and authors, says that the church is a people of the Spirit. Now, what does this idea of the Holy Spirit as a seal mean? It means that when you get saved, God's Spirit comes and lives in you. And that acts um, as a sign on your life, as a seal on your life, that whatever God's promised in the future, this Holy Spirit is a deposit. It's like a deposit. Deposit, you pay now because you're going to get full ownership later. You pay now, you're going to inherit fully later is the language that's used here. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives together individually and as a community, is a guarantee that we will inherit redemption, that we will be saved and that God will return for us and we will live and be with him 
forever. It's the presence of the Spirit in us that is very important because we all are baptized by one Spirit into one body, 1 Corinthians 12. We are brought together by this God. This is what brings us together. The fact that as I stand here and wherever you're watching this from, I have the Spirit and you have the Spirit present in your life. Another unifying factor in our uh, family, family characteristic is that we're a family with a shared past, present, and future. We have a common past, a common present, and a common future. And that brings us together. Uh, Brian Rossen in his book, Known by God, that we've referred to in this series, phrases it this way. He says, we're a family with a shared memory and a defined destiny. It's a wonderful phrase, a shared memory. Like our own families, our natural families have shared, shared memories and shared stories that shape and define us. Our, Christ, our family of faith has a shared memory and a defined destiny. If you can, in your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to, to 4. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4 reads, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So, you know, hearts and minds, I think it just speaks of your entire being. You set all of yourself above. Allow heaven to define you. Allow the kingdom of God to define your existence. Set your heart, your affections, your minds and your thoughts. Allow that to define you. Verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What Paul is starting to speak to here is that as a believer, individually and as a community, we have to identify completely with Jesus. He is our life. He becomes our primary identity marker because then one day we will appear with him in glory. So again, same idea as in Ephesians chapter 1. It's us plural, it's us together that are this family with a shared past, present, and future. Now you'll notice in Colossians 3 and verse 4, there's a past and a present and a future that we share. You died in the past. We all together came to Christ at the cross. We died to our old life. We died to our selfish ambitions. We died to ourselves and we decided to live for him. And so what's common in our memory that shapes us is that all of us come to the cross. And as the saying goes, the ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely level. We all share this common past, that we all come through the cross. This shapes our identity, that I've died to self and I identify with Jesus. My life in the present, Colossians 3 verse 3 says, is that it's now hidden with Christ in God. Now, first of all, that speaks to security and belonging, that my life is in Christ. And not only is it in Christ, it's part of, it's in God, part of those bigger purposes. But what it clearly speaks to is that when you see me, actually I'm hidden in Christ. My association is with Jesus. What Jesus is like, what Jesus likes, I like. What Jesus does, I want to do. Who Jesus is, is who I want to become. My life is hidden with him. He becomes my primary identity shaper and marker. And then the verse also speaks to the future. You will also appear with him in glory. We have a shared future that one day Jesus will come back and we will be with him. And there's a transformation that happens. And so these verses, Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, speak to the fact that we identify as people of the Spirit who have the Spirit of God living in us with Jesus completely. The last uh, characteristic of our family I want to just mention today is that we're a family 
with a purpose. At least the Great Commission, go and make disciples. And at Hatfield, we're about making whole life disciples. And we're gonna speak into this idea of being a family with a purpose uh, a little bit more next week, and we'll unpack that and explore it. And so we've looked at a few, and I think there are also others, identity markers of our family, the family of faith that we are part of, that we should allow to shape and define our identity. So how does the, sh the church shape my identity? Well, helping me remember that I'm called out to a purpose. I'm in the world, but not of it. I'm actually called to be holy. I'm called to be like a child of my Father in heaven. I'm a person who loves together with others around me. Everyone's included who comes with faith. I'm a person, a people of the Spirit, and we have purpose. And so as we adopt these family characteristics, they shape us and form us to who we are. But being part of this family of God also means that I'm part of something bigger than myself, grander than myself, something beyond myself with a purpose that I could never achieve on my own. I need my Adolfoy, my brothers and sisters in Christ with me to accomplish what God wants to do in my city, in my community, in my country. Whatever the front line is that God has given me, that place where God has positioned me to extend his kingdom. It's not just me there alone on a crusade. It's us together that go there together. So simply put, who are we? I think we're sisters and brothers together, a family, on a spirit-empowered journey of transformation and purpose. We're brothers and sisters together on a spirit-empowered journey of transformation and purpose. We have a shared memory and a defined purpose. But I thought today just to present us as a challenge that as we become and grow closer as a family of God, I wonder if it isn't perhaps time to consider surrendering some of our identity markers, those things which we put before we say we're a Christian. Because as long as there's something before I'm a Christian, it's going to hinder how much I can be part of the family of God. I'm a believer in Jesus and this. I'm a believer in Jesus and that. It's a bit like when you get married. You come from your old families and you've got to form a new family. And some of the things that defined and shaped your old family you leave behind. Some you take and adopt. And some things from the, the other spouse's family come. Some things get left behind and some, th some things come in. The things that define the family of God are some of the things that I've shared this morning. I'm not going to read the scripture, but it's in Philippians chapter 3 from verse 4, second half of verse 4 to verse 11. It's that passage where Paul says that I, you know, if I could claim things, you know, if I, I could claim certain identity markers, you know, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I came from the tribe of Benjamin. I kept the law perfectly. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I persecuted the church. All these things that could have given Paul status, that could have defined him, could have shaped his identity. He says, I give them up. I count them as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. For the sake of knowing him in his, uh, in his resurrection and in his power and in his good times and when things are going well, but also for knowing him when I have to suffer because I know him. In the fellowship of his sufferings is the language that's used in verse 10. So it's in this whole area of life, will I surrender everything to identify with Jesus? And perhaps as you're watching today, the Lord is 
by his spirit convicting you of some things that you've allowed to define your life, which shouldn't be primary. They, they're real. If, you, if you're 50, you're 50. That defines your identity. It shapes your identity a little bit. But it's not primary. Because it's only when I lose my life in Christ, when my life is hidden with Christ in God, that as an individual I can become who God made me to be and I can discover my true identity, my full identity. And it's only when we as a family of believers together hide our lives in Christ and be hidden in God that we can become the people of God that can be the witness, that can be the testimony to God on this earth and that can accomplish his purposes. Why don't you pray with me? Father, so many things around us shape us and pressure us and try to conform us to a pattern and a mold that you never planned, purposed, or intended. Won't you forgive us where we've allowed perhaps even just our individualism to define us, that we haven't, we've thought more about I than we've thought about we. Forgive us. And where there are things that I'm allowing, Lord, to define who I am that shouldn't be primary, anything that is not about Jesus, anything that doesn't make me more like Jesus, anything that doesn't make me more like the family of God that I belong to. Would you forgive me, Lord, and won't you, by that spirit that you've put in me, that spirit by which I'm sealed, that deposit that guarantees that I will be transformed, by the power of that spirit, won't you work in me and through me to become more like Jesus and to, and to display Jesus better to this world? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for being part of the family of God, a family where we together can change the world. Trust that you have a good week. God bless you as you go into this week.